a lot of the speakers spoke about the history of whole blood and how, in fact, that was what, that was how we used to resuscitate bleeding patients. And um, uh, that was only in the 1970s that the whole blood uh, or transfusion science, uh, science community moved towards um, separating blood. So when donors came in and gave blood, you know, as is the case now, it all gets separated into different components. And so that's what we have to use um, when we resuscitate people. But in world things like you know the Korean War, World War Two, World War One, basically they were just taking whole blood out of a patient and out of a donor, sorry, and um, often refrigerating it. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a, a little while. I have um, the three of us gathered around the microphone today, we, who have been on the show a lot. Welcome back, Ray. Nice to be back. Thank you very much. Uh, another colleague of ours from the department, who I think uh, we did in a podcast um, a while back on yeah. cardiac arrest and pregnancy, uh, Emmeline Lee, who's one of the other consultant leases here. Thanks, Roger. Good to be here. Graham and Emmeline are sharing a microphone because uh, our third microphone has just um, died, so... Hopefully, hopefully neither of you give each other COVID, although Graham has an E95 on, so it looks, it looks like we'll be safe. <laughs> well, for me, anyway. <laughs> um, so we thought, uh, I, I grabbed these guys and uh, got them together because we were, all three of us attended a um, conference which was uh, held here in Perth about, was it three weeks ago um, at, at Scarborough? So organised by Tanya Rogerson, one of the, um, one of um, Emlyn's colleagues at Charles Gardner, I think she was the main force behind organising it. Um, this conference was called Thunder 2023, which is pretty you know, nice, impressive, sort of catchy title, um, which was um, uh, run by the Thor Group. So that's also another catchy title. So I'm trying to, I'm just having a quick look to see, make sure I can remember what it stands for. So trauma, um, trauma hemostasis, something or other, resuscitation. Is that right? Yeah. I should have prepared for this. <laughs> um, so basically, this is a group of um, individuals who got together a long time ago, and most of them have a background in uh, the military and or uh, trauma care. And they, they um, their whole sort of um, emphasis behind this group is looking at the resuscitation and the use of blood products in these patient groups. Yeah. Um, so we were lucky to be able to attend that. I got invited to talk about obstetric hemorrhage, which is sort of a little bit outside of that remit, but um, I, there was a few other invited speakers who also spoke about other other bleeding uh, patients like um, cardiothoracics. There was a couple of people from uh, Charlie's who spoke about cardiothoracic bleeding, and, and um, most of the talks were for us overseas speakers um, sharing their experience with us, which was really interesting. You would have heard about the cardiothoracic anaesthetist is flying across the country when there's a, a, an announcement over the uh, PA. Is there any cardiothoracic anaesthetist on board? And uh, the cardiothoracic anaesthetist reluctantly puts his hand up and dobs himself in. Yep. And he said, is, what, is there somebody who needs um, acute critical care? And they say, no, 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 there's a cardiothoracic surgeon in first class. He needs his table adjusted. LAUGHTER that works really well with, with orthopedics, uh, urology. <laughs> it does. <laughs> really yeah. Gynecology. Yeah. Um, so we thought um, this is not going to be a really sort of detailed, um, formal sort of talk, but we thought we'd just sh share some reflections on the conference. Um, 
and then I have I have sort of written down a few li- a list of uh, interesting things I felt like I yeah there's oh. a there's a bit of um, drilling in the background I think it's the new theatres we're getting built so I don't think we can do anything about that I thought it might have to do with three of us in the room <laughs> and Graham Graham has to go and pick up his car and Emlyn's got a virtual meeting coming up so we we just got to keep going even if they are making noise in the background so um, I thought uh, what we I wonder where should we go. Th- just get your like overall impressions of the conference, both of you guys, before we start, and then we'll go through these topics because there's a, there's some interesting topics that they discussed and what our, our take on things are. Yeah, look, I've had a long interest in the topics that they discussed, particularly from a background working in rural, remote, um, uh, distant yep. care, in particular caring for traumatised patients. And so I've kind of been following the discussion on uh, different blood products and their utility and their storage in those kinds of circumstances for a long time. So I found it really, really interesting. Um, yep. There was clearly a, a, a sort of bias towards certain approaches. Yep. But that was uh, good to see. Yep. And uh, interesting to see the novel ways in which um, people from backgrounds like uh, Norway or just uh, regional American uh, or US um, services um, have become uh, efficient at their use of these kind of novel products. Yeah, yep. What about you, Emma? Uh, What's your take? For me, it was uh, a chance for me to improve my own personal development about these topics. Um, Obviously, being in working in tertiary hospitals, uh, I don't actually see much pre-hospital care. So it was really, really interesting for me and quite um, inspirational, really, to hear yeah, some of yeah. these talks from speakers all over the world who, who go out there into the wild, saving people from edge like cliff edges. Uh, so so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and learning a lot about these topics. Uh, obviously, we don't have a lot of the products that they talked about, but certainly it, uh, some of them might be coming our way. Mm. don't know. Yep. Maybe in the future. So. Yep. Yep, so I, I agree. I really, really enjoyed it. And the speakers were really um, interesting. It's really good to hear about um, things that we don't experience. Um, a lot of the pre-hospital stuff, but I think it's really good that that um, there was a range of people from all around the world and also from all the different areas of healthcare because although uh, although we, you and I haven't worked, done much pre-hospital stuff, Emlyn, I know um, Graham has, but, we, you know, they all end up in hospital, and so it's really good to be, you know, it's all a sort of continuum. Um, and I I learned a lot. There's, so these new products that you, we were alluding to, which we're going to go and sort of have a bit of a, a discussion about in a second, I, I found fascinating. Mm. Yep. Um, so the first one, let's let's just mm. dive in now because we've got everyone excited. So the first one, which we don't have in Australia, but which... Um, was probably the main thing that a lot of the military um, speakers um, shared their experiences with and their thoughts on was um, the use of whole blood. So um, the bit that I f- I'll say what the bit that I found interesting and then get your guys' comments as well. So the thing that I found fascinating probably the in- uh, initially is was um, a lot of the speakers spoke about the history of whole blood and how in fact that was what that was how we used to resuscitate bleeding patients and. Um, uh, that it was only in the 1970s that the whole blood uh, or transfusion science, uh, science community moved towards um, separating blood. So when donors came in and gave blood, you know, as is the case now, it all gets separated into different components. And so that's what we have to use um, when we resuscitate people. But 
in world things like you know the Korean War, World War Two, World War One. Basically, they were just taking whole blood out of a patient and uh, out of a donor, sorry, and um, often refrigerating it uh, and transporting it, and then just giving it back to them. So this is like you know um, much more simple. So there's no need for complicated technology. Just spin it and process it, and store it in fancy ways. It's just basically the same bag of blood that come comes out of the donor is just put in a fridge, and uh, you know they just decide on a certain expiry date, and then they either use it or they don't use it. Mm. And I think this is actually what's happening in some of the developing countries still. Yes, uh, that's right. Know, they said just about all of Africa. That is check. that is how they um, transfuse right. people that don't have you know they don't have the the um, Resources to centrifuge it and spin it and yeah and, and refrigerate so yeah. they just take it warm from yeah so that well I guess relatives. we can talk we can talk about that yeah, yeah. so there's warm or fresh whole blood which is um which is used in some of the uh, military um, operations overseas now uh, in the uh, it seem to be mainly the US um, but it's probably some of the other uh, military forces as well and um, and then there's stored whole blood which is also used a lot. I, I guess the, the, op- or the opposite, uh, the, the kind of the, um, the the argument that the people from the uh, Lifeblood organisation gave as to why we continue with um, fractions yep. of, of blood is that there are so many different niche markets that they're providing products for. Yes, they did actually say that it would be possible in Australia for whole blood to become available, but you'd have to make a business case for its use. Yeah, that is, you'd have to find the places where it would be appropriate to give, and it would definitely be appropriate to give in trauma. It may be appropriate to give in surgical um, bleeding, and it may be appropriate for obstetrics. Yeah, why don't we just? Um, I'm going to try and um, interrupt me if I get mm-hmm. it wrong, but I'm going to try and delve into the sort of the pro argument as, as to why they say it's better, and um, what what it would be, would be replacing. So. Basically, the the sort of before they started using uh, whole blood uh, again in the, in the U.S. and other some of the other military uh, forces um, in the early two thousands, I think. Just before that, they were using trying to trying to simulate whole blood by using um, fixed ratio resuscitation, so plasma, you know, one unit of plasma, one unit of red red cells, one unit of platelets, or a slightly lower ratio, uh, and. They, their feeling is, and so, th- so they were saying, you know, presenting some evidence, uh, observational data, uh, which is compelling, mm. but um, obviously not, you know, open to uh, confounding and bias. They're, um, they're having better outcomes when they used whole blood, and they were trying to say that's because um, there's less additives. Um, it's uh, not stored, you know, the, the storage lesions don't um, occur, uh, and it's more, uh, it's a balanced sort of replacement for um, for all the things that the patient is losing. So they're getting, you know, when you get a unit of whole blood, most of the time it hasn't been, if it hasn't been leuco-reduced, it has platelets, fibrinogen, other clotting factors, and red cells. Um, whereas if you try and simulate that with the with the fixed ratios, then you get a lot of all these additives, like things like citrate, and there's a lot of dilution and a lot of you know, crystalloid, and so you're not getting as high a hematocrit. And you're not getting as as good a hemostatic effect, and that's that was what they the, what they were trying to say. Um, why they thought it wasn't as yeah it was better, and the observational data from their use in the military um, zones, where there's you know large numbers of patients getting it, it seemed to support that. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I guess there's no. Uh, some of the other speakers were getting up and saying, "Well, we need we do need some randomised control trials," and I'm not sure if there are any ongoing. I think they were alluding to the fact that there were some, mm. but their their counter argument was there was never any randomised trials to s- to show that com- separating blood into components was was any better. Mm. Um, I think there was some. I can't remember the, this, so don't quote me on this, but it was some remarkable thing like 400,000 people in World War Two got whole blood or something like that. Can you remember? What it, the, it was a large number. It was very, very big. Yeah. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the other thing that, um, that that came up a lot, though, was like, um, so then I was like, well, what sort of whole blood do they use? So they were using something called L, the abbreviation is L-T-O-W-B, which is... Um, low teta, low teta, O um, whole blood. Yeah. yeah. So because I guess um, so, what you're doing is you're giving someone plasma and blood, mm. and the plasma that you that they've got, you don't want it to have high levels of anti A, anti B, because mm. basically they're not cross matching people. Mm. Um, and so that's a small pool of donors. Mm. I can't remember how many people it was. So they talked a lot about like having um, sufficient donors to supply enough of this blood. Uh, it, was, it was probably about one in twenty yeah. donors. Maybe it was eight percent. So it was a very low number. Yeah. yeah. But they could expand it if they um, used different criteria. They said. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And uh, so, that, so initially, it was all it was all males as well because they worry about um, the anti-HLA antibodies in um, females, which is uh, linked to Trali. Yes. So, but then they did say that in one of the centres in San Antonio where they use it and pre-hospital care in the, in the civilian setting, uh, they are just about to expand it to include um, female donors as well, who, but they just screen them by checking to see if they have any anti-HLA antibodies. antibodies yes. So that's probably useful because it might double the, mm. the donor pool. So that's one argument as to why it might be difficult to bring into practice. Mm. you got any comments? No. That's no. Right. <laughs> <Keep> going. <laughs> and I think, um, the other, so the other thing is... Um, so that's interesting, but it does, you know, put a lot of pressure on a small number of people in the in the in the um, community for donations. So you wouldn't want to change all red cells over to this um, way of doing things, you know. Yeah. And a lot a lot of transfusion is um, in stable anemic patients in hospital, mm. not people who are bleeding to death. So I think the the sort of cohort of people that that we're thinking this might be useful is people who are like an extremist who are like bleeding out. Yes. Uh, so the current paradigm where you've got lots of um, a component therapy is sort of, sort of biased towards the stable anemic medical patients or patients receiving um, chemotherapy who've got low platelets or have autoimmune disorders and things like that. Whereas where whole blood um, is a sort of a product that is for people who are bleeding. Acute, as so acute resuscitation life, as and life-threatening life bleeding. Replacement. Yeah, so oh. acute resuscitation and life-threatening bleeding. Yeah. yeah. So that could be anything, couldn't it? Uh, trauma and um, could be cardiothoracics, could yeah. be Surgery. GI bleeds, mm. could be obstetric, mm. hem, you know, extreme obstetric hemorrhage. I mean, I think the key there is the sort of uh, less controlled bleeding. Yeah. Where you might need urgent replacement. Yeah, that's right. 
everything which is where the whole blood comes into whereas if it was in obstetric hemorrhage where it's potentially controlled bleeding mm. yep. more so than others then uh, it may have less of a role to play I guess. Yeah. So I think so let, just reflecting on that in obstetric hemorrhage most of our patients it's not out of control crazy stuff uh, most of the time. There's maybe one or two patients every now and then where it is and so like the situations where you think someone's like you know peri-arrest and you're just calling for O negative blood to, to and you, you, everyone's in a real flap and a panic and you're maybe compressing someone's aorta and it's all really scary then that's the sort of patient that might be a useful situation but a lot of the time it's it's not like that that's mm. people bleed but it's you know fairly controlled and um, after you know surgical control and neurotonics and things it's all it's all sorted and they might end up getting transfused a few units of red cells but they don't need yeah, whole blood, I don't think it's a compelling argument in that situation. And, and, the, and the woman from the Australian Red Cross presented information that, or data that suggested that the, the kind of patients for whom whole blood would be relevant would be a tiny, mm. tiny proportion of the patients yeah. who receive transfusion products in Australia. Yep. That's no, that doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't be looking into it, though, I think. No. Yeah, so I guess the utility of it if it was to come in, um, where would you store it, I guess, or where, which hospitals or which sites yeah, would right. you actually keep There's a lot of blood. questions. It opens so, up a lot of questions, yeah. Um, it may be more useful in the rural areas, in yeah, the, I think the so. pre-hospital area, but then again, it's such a wide geographical expanse. How would you locate yep. it somewhere that's useful? Yep, and so that's, so that's interesting. So that... Um, reminds me of one of the other speakers, though, a guy from Norway. There was a presenter who spoke about the um, use of whole blood in uh, pre-hospital and remote communities in Norway, uh, where a lot of them, have, uh, a lot of those communities, are using whole blood now. In fact, even walking blood banks. So in some of the really remote regions up in the north of Norway, which get cut off from civilization regularly in the in the winter, have. Um, you know, uh, the walking blood banks where people who are screened regularly, who are known to be sort of safe donors, who are obviously O, o blood group, um, with low TETA, low TETA anti-A, uh, anti-AB. Oh, that's fascinating. Like, yeah. Can you imagine, like, you're in this village cut off from the rest of the world and uh, you, you may or may not know everyone in your village and, and you yep. know, there's, there's some sort of accident or trauma and you're called up to... Yep, and so that is used. So the so that is used in the military as well. I think they have, um, uh, they they do that. Um, well, they get fresh whole blood. And um, I do remember years ago listening to a speaker saying that was done in remote communities in Australia too. But obviously not in modern time. More 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 modern times that has uh, fallen I, I, by. I think since the um, age of human immunodeficiency virus yep. impacting upon blood stock, it's become. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's not done but or it hasn't been done but i know before that there used to be walking blood banks in many many uh, small towns yep. in australia so it's definitely changed yeah the, the world has changed with hepatitis c and hiv and other concerns about infection control uh, infection management all right we talked about that a lot but i think that was good because that was that was i think the main novel product that they discussed mm-hmm. at the conference and it was really um, discussed at at great length by lots of people. Yeah. I think we, um, in a presentation from the gentleman from Texas who talked about rotation of stock yep. into uh, ambulances, including air ambulances, uh, that is stock of whole blood, and then uh, that which is not used within a, a 
period of time, two weeks or so, goes back to the main centres to be used. Yeah, that's right. It was really interesting. Yeah, so we, they never, so they weren't wasting any of it, were they? So no. they, so it was, I think they were able to store their whole blood for up to thirty-five days. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some some places used twenty-one, but they, I think they were doing thirty-five. And when it gets, so they rotated it out to small um, regional centres and you know pre-hospital services. And when the blood had been out for like two weeks or something. Yes. It was brought back to the like the trauma center in, in the in the city in San Antonio and used, and it was always, almost always used. And they they had a very low mm-hmm. wastage rate. And he said most of that was because it was left out of the fridge accidentally or something like that. Not not because they they had, couldn't find a use for it. Yeah, it was like over ninety five percent. Yeah, used used. So that's a good. Uh, so I guess if you were going to do something like that in Australia, you'd probably have to have some other system like that too as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happens with our O negative blood, which is the you know the fractionated stuff that goes out to all these remote um, regional hospitals and things, or how much of that uh, ends up getting wasted. It'd be a similar a similar um, management or logistic issue, I would have thought. Yeah, I think when I was in the north, I can never remember us returning any. Yeah, so when it expires, you get rid of it. Mm. All right, that's interesting. So is this that's not that different to what the uh, problem what we face nowadays. Mm. Yep. Um, Okay, next thing I've got on the list here is uh, freeze-dried plasma. Mm. So, uh, do you want to say something? Go for it. Only that it's uh, been on the market for some time. It sounds like um, a lot of it's purchased by European nations and Israel, and Israel have used it in both military and civilian resuscitation in the field for some time. Yep. It sounds like it's an interesting product. It uh, seems to retain most of the clotting and other um, oncotic benefits of plasma. Yep. Sounds portable. It's got an 18-month shelf life. Yep. Mm. So um, I think, uh, I'm not an expert in it, but from what I picked up listening to the talk and when I quickly Google on my phone because I was thinking I think I'd learn about this, is that it's only manufactured nowadays by a few countries. France have some, make some. Um, often the Germany, places, that, Germany, I thought. yeah, and places that make uh, make it don't necessarily make enough to s- to share it with the rest of the world. But Germany make um, a f- um, freeze dried plasma product, which they have been selling to the Israeli uh, military. And the I think the, Is- the way they use it in the Israeli military is that most of the soldiers have they all have um, well, yeah, the frontline combat soldiers have a unit of it um, as part of their their kit that they carry with them, and so someone can administer it to them. So and um, and they've done some. One of the pharmacists in the uh, IDF um, did a study looking at you know how well it um, uh, lasts when it's carried around in everyday use for twelve months. You know, does it does it degrade because it's exposed to sort of you know different temperatures and things? And it looked like it, even after twelve months, it was still pretty good. Like most of the important clotting factors in it were still functional. At 12 months, there was a little bit of degradation, yeah. but nothing serious. It was like over 75 percent yeah. of fibrinogen. Um, uh, activity was retained. Yeah. Yep, and uh, and they talk about you know there was a lot of um, discussion about how you know the use of crystalloids, which in the pre-hospital setting, you know, uh, it's very hard to sort of you know supply blood products. So this was like a um, and there's been a few recent studies published, uh, including one um, called the Pampa trial, I think, mm. or something like that. I'm, I'm surprised that I can remember that in my old brain, <laughs> uh, but showed that there was an improvement in mortality. Uh, when it was used in pre-ho- a pre-hospital setting, mm. so so I thought that was good. Mm. Um, 
Well, one question in my mind, is freeze-dried plasma the same as FFP? I don't, it sounds like it's not. No, it's uh, I don't, don't think anyone's compared them to each other. But I mean, they're both plasma, but I guess reconstituting something. Uh, I, I'd have lots of questions about the, um, like how much citrate, how much of the other additives, what's, what other problems do you get when you give... I think uh, that's what makes it different. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Yeah, uh, We don't like... Or we we sort of don't like to use lots of plasma for our resuscitation because um, in in the obstetric hemorrhage world and the tertiary hospital because you know we use viscoelastic testing and we see that they don't need it and all it does is cause dilution and hypocalcemia and you're just giving something that they don't need. Um, but I think this sounds really useful when it, if you're say a soldier who's been shot and you're a long way from help um, rather than getting a bag of saline getting out some reconstituted freeze-dried plasma sounds better and it sounds like the, the initial studies support that. Yep. There was a, there was a um, statement made about saline. Yeah, they did. <laughs> there, was a, there, was a there was a lot of statements about how <laughs> salt water is good for cooking pasta. <laughs> I, got up in my, I got up in my talk and talked about how we usually don't jump in with blood products, we give salt water first. <laughs> I, felt, I was like, oh God, I hope I don't get lynched. <laughs> Well, we like cooking pasta here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was interesting. But I don't think obstetric patients having um, a ur- you know, obstetric hemorrhage are not the same as someone getting shot uh, out in the middle of the desert a long way from the hospital. Um, all right, the next thing. Um, there's a really good s- speaker from um, uh, Lifeblood who, who spoke about platelets. Because I always thought platelets, oh, yeah, yeah. They always they have to be stored, you know, stored on a bloody um, rocker, rocker at room temperature, and they all fill up with bacteria and kill everyone if you if if you use them, if you try and keep them longer than seven days. And then she got up and spoke about how in the good old days they used to refrigerate them, and now they're looking at it now and refrigerated platelets work better and they last for twenty one days. Uh, and the only reason we do have them on um, at room temperature is because when you infuse them, they seem to um, hang around a bit longer. So it's really good in medical patients who have th- you know, thrombocytopenia. When you infuse, you don't have to give them a bag of platelets every two days. You can you can space it out over weeks. So that was fascinating. What did you think? Oh, and, then, and, now that, and now some places are freezing them too. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting about the discussions <coughs> on platelets is we, uh, you know, I think a lot of the time when we're giving blood products, even there was a, a, a retrieval service in New Zealand that take blood. Yep. They, they they actually thought they were giving whole blood, but they weren't. They were giving blood without platelets. That's right, because they put it through the leukodepletion filter. So yeah. I reckon we don't know... I don't know enough about platelets. Yeah. Uh, because I don't use them very often. No. I, I only usually infuse them when someone's you know, critically bleeding and thrombocytopenic, mm-hmm. or they have something like preeclampsia and they're thrombocytopenic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think most of the time, you know... You know, we don't need to, if, because we base our decisions on whether to give platelets in a major hemorrhage on, um, you know, te- viscoelastic testing or, um, you know, a full blood count. And most of the time, the platelet count doesn't get low enough to need platelets unless they already have a pre-existing thrombocytopenia. Mm. So it's quite rare that we need an obstetric hemorrhage. Even when people bleed, like, well over a whole blood volume, sometimes they still don't need platelets. But some, but often we will think about giving them a bag of platelets when they get sort of that bad. I mean, the other discussion with platelets is just the elective setting. When yep. someone has thrombocytopenia, yeah. do you proceed with surgery at what 
number? Yeah. And, yeah. and do you oh, no, transfuse right. pre because <clears throat> of a number? Um, yeah, so certainly for us, you know, um, we wouldn't be worried about the platelets having to last for another week. So, you know, refrigerated platelets will be fine because we're just going give it, to give it as we do the cesarean or, the, or as they have their baby. Um, you know, so refrigerated platelets was fascinating. Maybe, you know, maybe in there's frozen platelets which are being used by, I think, Denmark and there is... Um, yeah, I mean, the, I think the Dutch army did a lot of work on frozen platelets from the um, Balkans conflict onwards. And yep. the Australian troops, when they were in Afghanistan, were using frozen platelets. So I think um, Professor uh, Reid, who's one of the speakers, is you know, the Australian intensivist anaesthetist who was um, the head of the medical services in the Australian military for a long time, has done lots of re- research on this. And so mm. I think Australia's been um, leading the way there too. I'm not sure if it's used outside uh, military settings, though, anyway. But it sounds like a great product for... Um, Remote and regional places too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing a, a military doctor from the Australian Defence Force talking about just how well he thought the um, thawed frozen platelets worked in trauma. Yep. When he served in Afghanistan. Yep. So, I mean, that would be really useful. You know, I, I've got this hypothetical case I use um, in the major hemorrhage workshops of you know a, a thrombocytopenic patient uh, bleeding in Kananara. Yeah. <laughs> Look Graham's old stamping ground, you know, yeah. and like, and she's really oozy, and the platelets are like fifteen or something from HELP syndrome. And I'm like talking to the uh, when we do this for the GPAs around uh, WA, and I say, you know, you're working in this country town, and uh, she's bleeding, and the plates are fifteen. What are you going to do? And they, <laughs> they all go. Well, we, I say, we're in the nearest platelets, and they're in you know Wellington Street in Perth. Um, they're, in so, the, they're in the Walking Blood Bank, or yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but this. This, that was fascinating. So watch this space over the next uh, um, in the future. Yep. How are we going for time, guys? Any, anyone panicking? You got fifteen minutes. I'll go in about ten. Okay. Uh, we've already talked about salt water for cooking pasta. Mm. I think crystalloids are fine for the initial volume replacement of you know everyone who has a baby or a cesarean loses a bit of volume, and uh, crystalloids are jumping in with blood products. Blood products are not without risk. And um, plasma and red cells and things, you know, that you're infusing living material from another human. I think uh, obstetric patients are a, yeah. a different. That's right. Different character and a different beast. Yeah. I mean, they've got they start off with a fibrillation of four, so, that, yeah, so that's that, their norm. Yeah, that's right. They're not going to become coagulopathic if you give them two bags of uh, a crystalloid. Yeah, correct. So, so they're not. So it's completely different to someone's yeah. who's been run over by a bus or been shot yeah. in the pre-hospital setting. Yeah. And there's all that kind of rheology as well about flow and so a little yep. bit of dilution mm. usually isn't terrible. Yep. In fact, it might be beneficial. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's the, the, there's the art and the science of resuscitating a bleeding patient mm. and knowing when someone, when someone is like properly bleeding out and knowing when to stop using or, or someone who's bled a litre and a half but you know that you know, a bit of ergometrin and some, and a, and a bit of um, removal of some stuff uh, from the the placenta, and then everything's going to come good. And mm. you don't need to pull the trigger on blood products straight away. It's a bit of an art there, isn't it? Yeah, it's different to the shock patient who's <coughs> had um, yep. you know a limb. Yeah, that's right. Severely injured. Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, there was a little bit of talk about um, just to f- finish off. I think we've touched on the main new things, but fibrinogen. Um, 
Uh, one speaker spoke about their use of uh, they uh, from Canada. They talked about they were they were using or they trialled um, empiric fibrinogen in the resuscitation of patients, fibrinogen concentrate and their experience. And then they talked about the cryostat study. I think it's cryostat two, mm. which I haven't got out in front of me and read through. But basically, both of those were looking at giving. A cryostat was cryoprecipitate. Both was, of those. That was from England, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Mm. In trauma, that was in trauma patients. Mm. But basically, what I think the just to summarise things is that the empiric use of fibrinogen in everyone who's bleeding without checking to see if they need it yeah. is the studies show that that doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. Well, they have, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't think so. My take on that is that actually what you should do is give fibrinogen to people who have low fibrinogen. And giving it empirically to everyone who's bleeding without thinking about it is probably not required. Yeah. So, uh, and and you know, it looks like there might may, may well be ways of measuring um, uh, point of care fibrinogen. You know, these smaller sort of portable devices in the future might help people be able to for those who aren't in a hospital with a you know viscoelastic device or some way of rapidly assessing it. It might be a bit more useful in the future. Mm. Yeah. I, I guess it's a it's a hard place to be if you were out rurally yeah, that's and right. you had no blood products, you have no access to, to blood products quickly yep. and someone's bleeding out in front of you. Yep. So uh, I apart think apart from salt water, what else do you have? You might have yeah. fibrinogen concentrate on your so shelf. In, so that's right. So I think um, just thinking about our colleagues who are here in Western Australia, we don't have freeze dried plasma or walking blood banks. But we do have um, and you know they getting them sort of having to call uh, laboratory scientists into their small community hospital to thaw cryoprecipitate is going to take a long time mm-hmm. and and or even do some sort of blood test to see if the fibrin is low so I, th- I still think it's not unreasonable just to give them fibrinogen concentrate if they're really worried but once again that is like you know just keeping in the back of your mind that if they don't look really sick maybe you should just check it first mm-hmm. um, because um, the evidence is that Giving it empirically to everyone who's bleeding is probably not appropriate. It's just a little bit of thought. How often do the words, oh, this patient's really oozy, yep. prompt the thought that perhaps there is low fibrinogen? And, and no, I think, I think when, that when you, someone has done a study this, on that, surgeon, the surgeon's assessment of um, whether there's a coagulopathy or not is really, really bad. It's like tossing a coin. Mm. But I, I, <laughs> I do think there's a little bit to it, yep. particularly for people when you're managing things empirically. You know, if you've got someone bleeding but you stop them bleeding, yep. you may not need the fibrinogen. But if you're going to, if you're trying to stop the patient bleeding, they get quite oozy, which potentially a sign. Yeah, that's true. And so, um, you know, with time, our know, point of care fibrinogen testing will be able to align perhaps with that um, schema that yep. um, the surgical team or the treating team um, develop. Um. With respect to fibrinogen levels, yeah. yeah. Tranexamic acid. So once again, uh, this this comes up all the time uh, in our <laughs> in our podcast. We talk about how bad if you inject it into someone's spine. Is it really uh, all it's cracked up to be? Now, the CRASH two study was um, probably the only big study that's ever been done that's really shown a positive, you know, like convincing positive benefit. And then since then, there's been a lot of other studies where it's been sort of bit ho-hum and a lot that um, have, have not found a benefit in lots of different groups of bleeding patients. Uh, this was really well summarised. I listened to, to um, 
Casey Parker's um, podcast is, is made of. Sorry, I've, I've forgotten. Brewing this. Dogs, isn't it? Yeah, where he, uh, uh, they summarise the evidence. And um, so I think the truth is it's a bit like the fibre engine story, I think, that there is probably a, there is definitely a group of patients out there who get hyperfibrinolysis mm. while they're bleeding and they have definitely, you should probably definitely treat that. But giving it to everyone and there's a large number of people who don't need it, you know, it's, it's, is it really um, is it really helping things? And that we've over sort of, you know, bleeding is complicated and it's, it's usually not because of hyperfibrinolysis. You know, it's usually because someone's vessels have been torn or so sometimes their fibrinogen, fibrinogen's um, really low and they can't make a blood clot. Um, so just sort of like relying on tranexamic acid and thinking it's going to solve everything, um, that's probably you know, the underlying reason why a lot of these studies haven't found a benefit because most of the time there's other things going on. It's only, it's only a time, it's one small part of the picture. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the studies where it's been shown to, it's been shown to make a difference you're working with very different populations. Yep. And the devil's in the detail. Yep. And the CRASH-2 study, people. just like the woman trial, a large number of people who, um, in the developing world, where there was quite a long time before they mm. even made it to the hospital and there wasn't a well-developed sort of tertiary hospital with blood service and other ways of resuscitating them in ICU and all that sort of stuff. So applicability. Um, I, don't, I don't see a hyperfibrinolysis anymore. No, because the TXA is given before there's any chance. That's right. To see it on the um, it's given in the antenatal visit. Yeah, on the visco <laughs> on the viscoelastic <laughs> testing. So we we have been talking about it a lot in our so I think uh, our hospital has been spending over a hundred thousand dollars a year on tranexamic acid, which seems too much to me because although some of our bleeding patients would probably benefit from it, I don't think the majority of that is actually providing that much benef- benefit to our patients. Mm. It's, it's been used a lot. Yeah, it's probably um, just uh, it's just making people feel better. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, we shouldn't talk too much more about that. So summary, summary thoughts about uh, what we currently do here and what we've learned. If there's anything we should change or or not. I'll I'll give you a summary thought about the conference itself. I think. Yeah. Um, I was very impressed with all the speakers, um, particularly the international speakers, and a lot of uh, impressive. Palmaris. Dare I say it? Women, women researchers and yep. um, leaders out mm. there who are doing a lot of good work, um, and interesting products coming our way, perhaps. Uh, but uh, nothing I would change currently in my current practice. That's great. I feel the same way. I feel that, you know, our approach to bleeding is understanding the surgical and medical causes for the bleeding and the range of products that we have at the moment seem to do the job we require in our workplace. Yep. Yep. So my take on it is I think, yeah, and um, there's a really good, uh, I'll, I'll put a link to it to um, for first 10 a.m. I think it is that have... Um, a really good summary of the ev- of the evidence for um, th- all the different blood products and the strategies in major hemorrhage at the moment was a really good review. Um, that Justin uh, Casey's um, uh, colleague made, uh, and basically it's like you know, no one really knows. It's, it's quite conflicting, but but there's a lot of people who who have the there's lots of different camps, and people are strong believers in these different camps, 
Um, but the truth is that all of us don't have that much evidence behind us. So, you know, there's, I guess, our approach here at Kingwood is we believe in targeted therapy, so we look, we're huge into sort of viscoelastic testing, yeah. figuring out what's wrong and just treating whatever we find is wrong, which is good if you're in a big teaching hospital and you've got all the resources. Um, then there's this uh, the people who believe in the one-to-one-to-one sort of fixed ratio transfusion. Um, that's quite a big camp. And then there's people, obviously, um, who, are, who are big believers in whole blood. Those are sort of seem to be the sort of three main camps. And there's nuances and crossover between those camps. It's not like everyone's in one or not the other. Uh, I think... Um, but there's, there's lots more that we'll discover. We haven't figured it all out, and it's going to be a lot of changes in the future. So mm-hmm. watch this space. Things I think... The, the biggest changes I think that might... Um, that I was inspired to think might occur is that maybe eventually if, if whole blood comes into Australia then maybe we instead of using O negative here we would have like bags of um, whole blood for a life threatening haemorrhage mm. but I can't see much else changing here maybe refrigerated platelets but definitely some of those things we talked about today might be of much more relevance to re- uh, people or our colleagues who work in regional hospitals or um, RFDS small or hospitals and RFDS yeah. yeah so that that is definitely something I think mm. quite exciting to watch mm. Great. Thanks, guys. You better go and get your car. Yeah, thanks. You better go and tune into your (laughs) other meeting. Thanks for having me. Okay, cheers. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time. I'd like to acknowledge the Wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.